Welcome to Calliope Sanctum, a bi-weekly story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, which is a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. So come sit with us in the honeyed light, among the ripe pomegranates in Calliope's sanctuary where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come, lean against the sun-warmed stones with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. Music is by Yanis Linardakis. And podcast sound editing is by Simon Lindstead. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Calliope's Sanctum. So this week I have a story from my short story collection, Our Lady of the Dark Country, again, for you. I seem to be reading a lot from that book. I guess it has some of my favorite pieces collected in it to begin with, and they feel really timely for some reason to me right now, so I keep wanting to read them. And um, this one is called The Garden, and it's actually the epilogue, and sort of of a different tone than the other pieces in the collection, but I like it as the final note with this garden sort of mythic garden that is the centerpiece of the story. And it's inspired by the real live garden, actually, of a very, very dear friend of mine, Nao, who lives in British Columbia on Vancouver Island. So this garden has traces of her garden in it. I wrote it shortly after visiting her for the first time in July. I'd never been to visit her in July before, and the garden was outrageous. And... She and I spent many, many months prior to that visit reading through the sonnets to Orpheus by Rilke over Skype together. We would read them and then like pick apart, you know, the poems like we were in poetry class together in the mornings with tea. And so the story is a combination of sort of inspiration from her actual garden and then our conversations in general and also our conversations about Rilke and his sonnets to Orpheus, particularly this one, number 17. I'm going to read you the poem um, because it's definitely influenced this story, and you'll see. Where, inside what forever blissfully watered gardens, upon what trees, out of what deep and tenderly unpetaled flower cups do the exotic fruits of consolation hang ripening, those rare delicacies of which you find one, perhaps, 
in the trampled meadows of your poverty. Time and again, you have stood there marveling over the sheer size of the fruit, over its wholeness, its smooth and unmodeled skin, and that the light-headed bird or the jealous worm under the ground had not snatched it away from your hands. Are there such trees flown through by angels and so strangely cared for by gardeners hidden and slow that they bear their fruit to nourish us without being ours? Is it true we have never been able, we who are only shadows and shades, through our ripening and wilting so early, to disturb the enormous calm of those patient summers? Whew, Rilke. This is translated by Stephen Mitchell, which I think is my favorite translation of Rilke. My favorite translator. Um, yeah, might want to listen to it again. <laughs> Rilke tends to need a few goings through to land. Um, anyway, so you will see the influence of that poem on this story. I'm trying to think what else. Also a bit of the book What the Bee Knows by P.L. Travers. P.L. Travers is the author of Mary Poppins, actually. But um, I knew her first as a young teenager as the author of What the Bee Knows, which is one of the most fantastic collections of mythic essays that I've ever read in my life. I don't it's astounding. And so one part of this story also feels like she was influencing it. And um, yeah, I think that's all I need to share for now. I felt like I wanted to give this story to you this week because of the consolation of the garden in it, the incredible richness of this mythic garden that shows itself in the story and the fact that at least I believe that we can all be cultivating this kind of sanctuary inside right now and also very tangibly in the earth where we are with seeds in our hands, you know, whatever that looks like, whether it's just a single flower pot on your porch or if you have the space for more, just apprenticing ourselves to these forces, to these um, beings in the soil. Right now I feel like they're calling in that healing and consolation of the garden is calling so i share this story with you in that spirit and i hope you enjoy the garden down in the garden just beyond the fields we know those fields where the grass is going to seed and the apples are falling early, bruised with heat. The small and gnarled men rise up from the shadows of dusk to do their nightly work. I went out walking for no other reason than to clear my head, as I often did on those days when an idea had held me fast over the notebook all morning. It was my usual walk. I'd done it almost every day, save in very hot or very wet weather, since we'd moved to the island from the city five years before. We'd moved for the sake of quiet and fir trees, the clean air and the innumerable stars. We'd moved to raise our daughter in the woods. Coming, we left behind our mobile phones and wired a landline. Internet was only available through a little cable. The clarity that came with what we'd left was immense. Looking back, I can't remember anything unusual about that walk from the outset. No premonition of the uncanny lurking in the shapes of alder crowns or the creaking of limbs. 
No vast and unusual silence in place of the summer thrushes and robins darting for red huckleberries. No eldritch cast to the shadows. There'd been a bear recently come down the mountain due to summer drought. I'd seen her on my walk a week before, rearing up in surprise out of the salal. She huffed but ran, a thicket of darkness. My skin hummed for the rest of the day at having been so wholly seen. I wish I could say I had some intuition of what was to come as I made my usual round through the fields and firwood. I could embellish the telling if I was that sort of man, but in truth the only hint of the other world about my thoughts was the small, bright eyes of the bear I'd seen and how they'd reckoned me and where she might be now. My mind had been so tired of late. Nothing I put down on the page seemed to sit right, to unfold with ease as it usually did. Everywhere a false start. My days seemed measured by the worth of my pages, as if that was all life asked of me, all it wanted. As if I was only a mind and a pen. It was hard to climb down out of my mind after. Walking helped. I was lost in that thought, of my work and of the bear and where she might be, only half aware of the fir trunks and the long gold light of late afternoon. Still, something made me come to a stop in the middle of the path. I was near the place I'd seen the bear. The tall stand of huckleberries grew thick to my left. Wild roses twined in among them, bright with hips. I fretted over that moment later, trying to deduce what sensory force had stopped and turned me thus. The sound of the gardener's dark feet, petals falling, a scent near unbearable of nectar. But no, those scents and sounds came later as I drew nearer. I can only say, half incredulous still, that it was my soul moving swift and breathless just a little ways ahead of me that made me stop and turn my head. Such a thing had never happened to me before. It has, however, happened since. But first, I must tell you what it was I saw gleaming through the rose hips and the firs, before you will understand why it must have been my soul that moved me just to the place where I might see it, like a shaft of sun refracted through dew, which only at a particular angle will reveal the full spectrum of its light. It was a garden. Sitting there in a clearing within the young firs, a great jewel full of sun. It sat there in the peak of its bloom, luminous with color. Deep purple larkspurs leaning against the white froth of umbels. The lemons and mauves and creams of gladiolas rising, great budding spears between the dusky cosmos. Calendula, too bright in its oranges and yellows to look at long. Nasturtiums and dark pink morning glories and elaborate nigella crowns and a tower of dark sweet peas hedged in cornflowers. Zinnias of a vermilion which made a strange unbidden nostalgia press my chest. Straw flowers glossy and bright as women's hats from some lost world and the dahlias, heads lifted above the others and thrown back to the sun. Burgundy ones like dark blood, yellows tinged with tangerine, and greatest of all, the blooms big as faces opened so fully they made planets of themselves, each petal a full spectrum of pink. These depths of color I learned later when I moved closer, when I mocked among them, trying to memorize each curve and pattern and shape, trying to make them part of my own soul. 
That's why I can tell you their names now. I spent weeks after, years, with gardening volumes, discovering every name. In that moment, though, I, I knew only an overwhelm of color. I struggled through the wild roses, the tangled salal and sharp-leaved grapefruit. Had someone bought this bit of land and turned it into a garden while I wasn't looking? But that wasn't possible. I, I would have seen it, heard the earth movers and the voices of the workers. I did, after all, walk this path near daily. Even I, lost in thoughts as I often was, would have noticed something so significant. But I wasn't bothered by such questions for long. Something else in me was too full, too giddy and gleaming to work out what was possible, what was logical. I kept on through the underbrush. The garden had not seemed very far when I saw it from the path, but now it was always one stand of trees distant, a shining patchwork of color and light, and the heady intimation of many bees. At last I stopped, weary of the scratches on my legs, a little unnerved by my own fervor. I began to worry that I might get quite lost this way, that I'd seen some fata morgana, some trick of light and heat over a pond I never knew was there, though fata morgana is occurring in forests I'd certainly never read about before. But as I started to fret and wipe at my brow, a thrush made the sound of water in her throat, and the furs around me released a scent of sweet almonds. I looked up, straight ahead, and there was the garden not more than three paces away, rimmed with a hedge of dark mauve roses, their centers gold with pollen. Their scent opened around me in the sudden sun, and I almost came to my knees before the gate of that place, weeping. But just then, I saw three things which so astonished me that I kept my feet out of pure wonder. First, just at the gate's threshold sat a dog, the color of creamed honey, with wild fur that curled just slightly at his paws and tail. He regarded me with dark, intelligent eyes that, had he been a man, I would have called compassionate, but as a dog I thought carried something further still. Second, a very clear voice came into my mind when I saw him. It said, Leave your concerns at the gate, dear sir. You have no need for them here. The voice was so patient and so kind, just like the eyes of the dog, as if the follies of humans were long known to him and impressed him very little. I did not know how to reply or to whom, aloud or in my mind. And could it be that great shaggy dog who spoke? I mean, could it truly? As I stammered and hesitated, I saw the third thing. In the garden, beneath the twisted old apple and pear trees which grew along the far edge and in and out of raspberry canes, Many small men, the color of earth, worked, padding here and there with hands like roots, crooning small husky songs that stirred a pure note of sorrow up from somewhere entirely unknown in my body, which pierced briefly through my breast and then was gone. Now tears fell across my cheeks freely, but I did not notice them because the dog had led me through the gate and into the garden, and no human being could walk into such a place without weeping. A quality of light struck me, the shadows cast delicately behind the incandescent blooms. In among the petals, in the light and in the shadow, I saw the forms of my own life, an effervescent movement like some ornate shadow puppetry. My daughter, 
being born from my wife, both pink and screaming. My wife, dancing in a winter field of snow in a blue dress when we were very young and had only just said, I love you. My grandfather, dying in his old dark bed and a priest in candles beside him, the first death I had known, and how hard he clasped my hand. The cherry tree in the garden of my boyhood and a small me laying across a limb, belly plump with cherries. My mother's face, very close, kissing me at dusk, and her heavy string of glass beads falling out of her blouse against me, warm with the smell of lilies. My own daughter, down by the sea, watching the little purple crabs on the rocks with perfect delight, chanting, bug, 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 as they scuttled away. Then, as if they had always been so, and never my own memories at all, these shades and sylphs of light among the tangled stalks and blooms became others, not my own life, but another life, or many, and yet I knew them well and clearly, a slender woman with heavy hair, opening a carved box and all the sorrow and need and pleasure I'd ever felt pouring out of it with a rush of pollen into the air. A man in a hundred pieces and his wife weeping, more beautiful than any woman I had ever seen, gathering his pieces up one by one into her arms, her dress dark as river silt. A man with a golden instrument in his lap, paddling a long, thin boat in a very dark place turning back just once to look on the ashen face of his beloved and losing her there and the red poppies in the upper world where he returned. A man with a lantern inside the belly of a great whale singing. A lovely girl falling and falling from a hole in the clouds to the earth far below which was only just being formed. A woman in a garden speaking to a golden snake in an apple tree a hunter with his bow, a pond full of beautiful long-necked women, the shore lined with feathered skins, a little box full of embers and a hummingbird darting away with one in his beak, a young man following a ball of golden thread as it rolled across mountains, a citadel, a whole gleaming city of gold and silver and bronze at the edge of the sea at sunset, and a woman in red opening the gates to an inexorable tide a great savanna, and in the center a woman holding her newborn son up to the stars, asking for one to fall into his heart so that he too might walk among lions. An old wounded man and a young shining one in the cup between them, and outside the land all wasted and dead for the question the boy did not ask, the question that I, now, standing there among the bees, knew with perfect clarity for one long instant. But coming back fully to myself, I could not recall it, and to this day, I cannot recall it still, though I have known it when I dream. I had wandered further into the garden without realizing, trying to get closer glimpses of these phantasms at once intimate and strange. Now, the flowers engulfed me and the bees, chest high, as if I had waded into a lake of inexplicable phosphorescence. Great dark red blooms of perfect geometry, spires of mauve and yellow and rose, white umbrellas, nodding pollen, a profusion of fragrant orange pinwheels at my ankles, stumbling with dark and velvet bumblebees, the broad-hipped pear trees, a single cherry, the hedges of rose and raspberry. 
It was like being inside a single unbroken moment of creation. A rose opening. And also, all of them at once, a beauty so sheer and so unmanageable that I felt myself trembling. I was close to terror. I feared that behind all of these bright petals I might actually glimpse the one who made them. Whether that force was simply a great light or a great shadow. An old and radiant man or a woman as broad as the earth or none of these. Or an unseeable crossroads of matter and spark. It would destroy me where I stood. It would undo me, unmake me, unspool the story of my life. Then I had the sensation of a long, long arm cloaking my shoulder, a wind that carried a solar heat and the scent of warm amber. A very tall being urged me with unspoken tenderness toward the garden's far edge where the pear trees dreamed in silence their swollen fruit. I didn't dare look, not full on, I was still afraid of some essential combustion, some annihilation, if I turned and stared directly at the one who guided me. In the corner of my eye, the being was the color of blue in northern summer skies, whose darkness never completely falls, a face neither male nor female but both, and gleaming with little thorns of stars, and with translucent dust as on the wings of moths. Come, said a voice, and the dog was on my other side, watching me with the compassion that only dogs know. So I found myself before the oldest, largest pear tree. The beautiful, terrifying being and the dog were gone. That tree might have been as old as time in its broadness. Its gnarled trunk was flecked with lichens in every color. Its fruits hung near, shrouded with their own heavy scent of marzipan, of sun, of the warm necks of women, and the inside of the earth. One of the small, dark men emerged from the branches, clambering down quick as a squirrel. He carried a perfect golden pear in his hands, freckled red from the sun and utterly unblemished. He held it out to me, and I bowed, I who had never bowed to anyone or anything in my entire life. There was no other way to accept such a gift except with such a gesture. The sun moved behind an old fire. When I rose from that deep bow, holding the pear out in front of me, the garden was gone. I stood knee-deep in Salal, clutching a great and golden fruit. The pear had not lost its luster or its scent. It gleamed there in my hands. All the colors of the garden shone in its freckled skin, and all of its shadow, too. I sat there in the thicket and wept for what I had witnessed and what I knew I would one day lose. I never ate that pear. Of course I didn't. How could I? I did try to explain what I had seen to my wife and my daughter, and I think they worried for my sanity, though they did not say so aloud. Only when a season had passed, then two, and the pear still sat untarnished and unaged on my desk on a little silver stand meant, I think, for tea cake, did they begin to wonder. I know this because they studied me, each in her way, and asked me sidelong questions about my work. For I had become obsessed, a scholar overnight, sending away for expensive antiquarian volumes on the sacred gardens of India— Japan, for horticultural encyclopedias and historic treatises on the rose, 
for books on the Persian gardens of Shiraz, the poetry and folklore of English flowers, biodynamic principles and the arcane philosophy of alchemists, the lore of elementals. It did me some good, I think, to be thus immersed, though in the end it would have been better if I had simply planted my own garden sooner and made a place for my wife and I to sit under fruit trees after our daughter had grown and moved away, so that together we could have watched their blossoms fall in spring, their leaves return, their fruits ripen, and cut them open together to share that sweet fruit. Instead, I sought the garden only in my mind. I might have gone mad if not for the golden pear that never diminished on my desk, and the memory of the feeling of that place, a place where neither regret nor worry touched, where time seemed to well from the blossom and tell itself in light and shadow every story that ever was, all held inside a single one. Many years later, after we had become grandparents and a terrible war had come and gone from the world, my wife fell very ill. Then I thought with a great surge of hope that I understood at last what purpose I had saved the golden pear for all these years. I brought it to her with a little knife and bade her eat it, certain it would save her. But she only smiled and said, My beloved, I do not want eternal life. That is not for human beings. We have had more than our share of sweetness here. Now give it back to the world and me as well. She made me promise to clear a space and plant the golden pear in the earth. I could not bear to while she still lived, in case she might, after all, decide to take a bite. But she was much wiser than I, my wife. After the funeral, I brought her ashes with me to the fir wood because I did not know what else to do. I was crazed with my sorrow. I brought the golden pear, too. I went to the place I had so many years ago seen the garden. My frequent coming and going, seeking it, had cleared a path to that place which was still only an opening in the trees. Very gingerly, I began to dig a hole, and then another. I brought a shovel. I cut the pear into three pieces, a seed in each. Inside, it was still wet and fragrant, dripping sweet as the day it had been picked. I buried each piece. I licked the juice from my hands without thinking. I spread my wife's ashes in each hole. Then I laid down on the cold ground over the three mounds I had made and wept, so many tears for an old man to weep. I wept violently and long until my whole body hurt, and then I slept all through the spring night without stirring, dreaming of my wife when we were young and our daughter a baby still. When I woke, I understood. I spoke to my wife and the pear seeds and the fir trees. In a shaft of early sun, I saw a figure, dark as earth with gnarled hands and tender eyes. Then another, gleaming as with the dust of moths. But there was no garden yet around me that morning. I began to weep again. Then I began to dig. <laughs>